I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I think we've decanted for long enough. It's time to sit back and enjoy Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer and Ollie Geel. Yes, welcome back to another episode of the Two Sharp Reds. We know it's my favourite time of the week where myself and Mark Schwarzer, we do like to sit down and try a bottle of Burgundy grape and towards the end of that bottle of wine, we'll compare it to a player past or present. As you know, Mark's been spending a lot of time in Spain and if you've seen the news, there's been a giant barrel of wine that's exploded in south of Spain 5,000 litres of wine has been lost. And on that very day, Mark started driving back to London. So all all I'm saying, it could be a coincidence, but I'm also thinking it might not be. So Mark is on the road, coming back uh, to London as we speak. So I'm very lucky to, instead of Mark, be joined, keeping on uh, with the good signs and the good themes, but of course also the goalkeeping theme with David Priest who spent his playing days at Sunderland, Lincoln, Barnsley, Aberdeen and more, and is now applying his coaching trade at Ostersen in Sweden. I should say Sweden, really. Uh, do it properly if you're going to do it at all. David, thank you so much for joining me in this episode of the Two Sharp Reds. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's, it's not a bad thing to be a substitute for Mark Schwartz. I'll take that. <laughs> exactly right. He's not, he loves being a substitute himself. So he actually asks, can you do it every week? So look, we'll see how you go in your debut and then we can, uh, we can chat later. But uh, look, firstly, are you a wine fan? I am a. I wouldn't call myself a wine buff, but sure. I am a. I am a, a wine fan. I like a, a nice red. Now, are there any whites or reds from your part of the world? No, it tastes more like vinegar, the yeah. English wine. But no, I'm, I, I love a. Uh, I love a Malbec actually. Yeah, nice choice. A or so you... a, a, a Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, New Zealand. Oh, we like our New Zealand wines. We obviously like our Australian wines, but we uh, and Oyster Bay last episode actually some beautiful yeah beautiful wines from New Zealand so um I'll be drinking uh for this episode a Beaujolais uh Louis Jardot it is a Merlot which you'll be a big fan of um it says here uh, it's fruity with a lot of depth enhanced by their home soil succulent red with traditional fermented methods now do you like the idea or slash understand the idea that Mark and I go with here that will then compare this wine to a player at the end yeah, I mean, we can, I can go with it. It's not a problem for me. Uh, if it's something full-bodied, yeah, you look for a player who's like a little bit on the beefy side, like, you know. Okay, I like it a lot. I've got some ideas already, as soon as you say that. So, mate, we'll get to that very shortly. We'll touch base uh, with what's going on in your world, uh, world as well at half-time when we have our half-time drinks. But let's get stuck into the Premier League and what we've seen on the weekend, starting with the early kickoff between Brighton and Manchester United. We know that Brighton had that many chances. It was ridiculous. They should have really walked away. Bare minimum of a point, but absolutely with the three points. But there's one thing that we really need to speak about, and that was the final moments. We saw Neil Mopai with a pretty clear handball, but the decision was made for the first time after the final whistle was blown. So I suppose from your eyes, how did you see it? And was it fair? Was it not fair? 
I mean, if you're going to use VAR, these are the instances that you're going to use VAR for. And I mean, it's for in years to come, it's going to be a, a question on a pub quiz, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's the first yeah. time it's been awarded after the final whistle's gone. But I just think that, yeah, in a, in a situation like that, it's a bit silly by um, Neil Malpai. Had a good yeah. game too. So he's let himself down there. Yeah, and you could see he knew straight away as soon as the, you know, they, were, they, they went to the monitors and they were saying that there was going to be a, a, a question by VAR. You could just see that on his face he knew what was coming, like, you know, and it was um, in, in situations like that, we've had a lot so far this season of incidents with handballs that have been controversial. But I think this is one that probably the least controversial one out of a lot of them. So in terms of the, the actual, the physical call itself, um, I agree with you there that the, the, you know, it was a handball. But what did you make of the circumstances? It was the first time. So it's kind of difficult to kind of, you know, th- make what we actually think of it. It's the first time I've ever really seen it. But if the final whistle's blown and the stadium music started to play, do you think that, that that's the end of the game? Yeah. I mean, you, you ordinarily would think that. But like you, we, we, when we were talking uh, before we came on here, it's 2020. <laughs> normal things don't occur and uh, but at the same time this maybe there has to be some sort of um you know ruling whether the game doesn't finish until the var check is finished uh and you know but then you open yourself up to another kind of worms that what if another incident happens while the var check's going on how far do you go yeah. back and yeah it, it it just has to be uh it's something that has to be rectified and we talk about var all the time you know, the controversial decisions, uh, uh, you know, the, the minimal offsides that are being given now, a matter of millimetres. But at the same time, it's like anything else. We've got to make sure that we get it right. And the only way that's going to happen is by, through time. Mm-hmm. Now, they've got to implement the system that we have now. And, and it was always going to have teething troubles. But it, they've got to come to some sort of arrangement sooner rather than later about sort of Chipping at it, even if it has to be, I mean, I'm not sure about the ruling about whether they can change it mid-season, but they have to do something where changes could be implemented a lot quicker than what they are rather than waiting for the, the next year and the, and the next uh, meeting of the, of the federation that makes the rules. Is it uh, IFAB? Yeah, they should do it when, uh, when the transfer window's open mid-season. You go, that should be, the, the January should just be a, a month of, right, what didn't work? If it doesn't, you know, if you don't have enough players, you can get more players in. So why can't you change rules? You, you know what? You, you can make that, see that mid-season uh, winter, uh, transfer window. You can make that like a holistic window. Yeah. So you can make it where you can have, obviously, transfers. You can have rule changes that can be implemented. And also you can make it a window where only managers can change as well. Yep. They can only change in those windows. And I think that... Is, it, it would it would make it uh, obviously it would make the job um, a lot more uh, secure for the managers, and also give those managers who maybe they do just need three or four games to turn things round, um, give them a chance to to rectify things and and keep themselves in a the job. So look at us guys solving the, all the world's issues within football on our very first episode of Two Shot Reds. I absolutely love it. One thing, I don't know if we could fix what's going on at Man United if we, if we tried. How did you see them? For me, it was that unaccountable football. It was put your head over it. Brighton were, were hungrier because on paper, it looked like Man United should be able to walk over a Brighton side, but they just didn't look hungry. Is that sort of what you saw or was it more tactically they got it wrong in parts? I think what you're seeing now, I mean, you know, just stepping away from Manchester United for a second, what you're seeing now is 
the influence of Graham Potter on Brighton. Last season was just him bedding his ideas in, getting the uh, get the squads used to the way that he works. Obviously, I know a lot about Graham from uh, you know he was the manager at Oster Suns before uh, before the former manager came in and before I came here. And there's a lot of people still here who worked under him. So I know a lot of his methods and the way that he works. And you can just see the season, I said right from the start, top, top 10 finish for Brighton this season. Uh, and he's going to go into bigger and better things. And I think you've seen in this, uh, these first three games, you've seen it uh, against Chelsea. Outplayed Chelsea, but didn't get what they deserved. Outplayed Manchester United, didn't get what they deserved. And I think, you know, the diff- only difference now between the style of play and how he wants to play and beating Manchester United and Chelsea is those very top players. It's the, you know, you look at the, the attacking force that Manchester United have got, the money that Chelsea have spent on their attacking force. That's the difference between those two, uh, well, the, the, the top six sides and the likes of Brighton at the moment. So touching on Chelsea there, let's talk about their game between uh, them and West Bromwich Albion. It was absolutely bizarre. They managed to rescue a point and ended 3-3. It was a wild game to watch. Uh, is, is a concern for you, and something that sort of has been a theme over the last few episodes here on Two Shut Reds, has been if you compare it to when Fulham came up to the Premier League last time and they completely changed their squad. I mean, it's a different story because we're talking apples and oranges in terms of talent. But is there a fear that there's too much change at Chelsea? Yeah, there could be. But I also think that Frank Lampard realises that no matter his status as a player at the club and, you know, he's a legend there. Roman Abramovich, you know, will treat them exactly the same as any other manager. And they know that if they don't get it right at the start of this season, then they won't be in the job. I think Jody Morris has already said that, that they, you know, they won't be given the, any more time than anyone else just because of who they are. And I think that they recognise that. They need to accelerate things very quickly. And to do that, they need the quality. Now, what they're hoping now is what's happened with, you know, from a goalkeeping point of view, you look at someone like Edison and Allison, you know, big money signs that came into a side and in a position that's difficult to integrate and they, and they hit the ground running. They've got to hope, Chelsea and Frank Lampard have got to hope that these signings do exactly that. Well, I mean, Havertz, other than his hat-trick in the, in the cup, has been pretty quiet. Werner's not done a lot. Silva made a mistake that I don't think I've ever seen him make a mistake like that since maybe uh, Brazil-Germany in, in the World Cup, you know, in the semi-final there. Were you surprised by his debut? Yes and no. I mean, like you said, he's 36 years old, so experienced. You don't expect a, a mistake like that from him. I actually thought when I saw the, uh, saw the game and I saw him make the mistake, I thought it was at Stamford Bridge because it was almost the same spot that Stephen Gerrard yeah. slipped as well. But it, all the talk about Kepper, Caballero, Edward Mendy coming in now, that was the focus at the start of the game. And yet it was the defensive frailties that probably contributed to the way that Kepper's performed in the two years since he's been there. You know, it probably takes the pressure off him a little bit and the focus off him a little bit. And they realise that it's, maybe it's just not all him. So, from a goalkeeping perspective, two things. Do you think that Kepa should have played or was it the right decision to, to sort of hand it over to Caballero just for possibly what we're assuming to be, you know, what would have been Kepa's last game? And the second thing I want to touch on properly is, as you could probably imagine, Mark and I spent a lot of time talking about Kepa and, you know, De Gea and some of these big-name goalies that just aren't quite getting it right at the moment. But I'd love to get your thoughts on, from a coaching standpoint, where... 
where are his mistakes coming from? Because there seems to be a wide range of mistakes. You know, it's not as if he's being always beaten in his near post or always beaten on his feet. It just feels from an outsider that nothing goes right for him. There's too much of a wide range of mistakes that he was making. Yeah, I think initially when he came over, settled quite well, but there's still goals that he was conceding where you might expect him to at least stop the shot. And, you know, I, I, there was a game uh, when he first came against Arsenal where there was a header from a clo- from close range. And he always has his arms really low in starting position. And the ball goes past him fairly uh, fairly close to him. And just from that position, there's no way he can get his hands up in, in time. I've always thought that, especially when crosses are coming in, that uh, especially uh, from penalty spot and closer, You've got no time to react to get your hands up, so your hands have to be up and ready to take the ball in the, in the first place. Anything down low, you can use your feet. But um, And there was little things like that, that's, that, like his technique with, with his arm swing. Somebody shoots, his arms do a, a really exaggerated swing back to come forward again to try and generate momentum. That's fine from, from long distance. You've got yeah. time to do it, but for mid-range and short, uh, close-range finishes... You just haven't got a time to do that. And if it's working for you, fine. It's a, it's a good technique to use. Manuel Neuer uses it to great success. But with him, he was just, his timing was just a little bit off and he wasn't going to, take, uh, he wasn't going to get his hands there quick enough. So that started the, sort of the, the ball rolling with the, the question marks over him. And then once you start getting criticism and once you start making one or two mistakes, then it's all about mentality. And going into a game, as a coach, you're preparing a, a goalkeeper to, to go into a game where they're in the zone or they're, they're in like a game flow. So when they get on that pitch, there's no real thought about what they're doing. Of course, tactically and everything, once they're in the game, they're, they're, they're intelligent and thinking about, the, thinking about what's happening. But also that every motion, every action becomes automatic almost. You know, you feel it as a, as a goalkeeper, especially those games where you're busy, you make an early save and then that's it. You're not even oh. thinking about what you're doing. Everything's automatic. And with him, the thought process, he's thinking about everything that he does. Every back pass, like the back pass against Liverpool, the ball's coming back to him and he's trying to, he's trying to show, I'm cool on the ball. I'm not going to make a mistake. I'm composed. But what he was doing was taking time he didn't have. That time Marnie had come and closed him down. So when you look at things like his arms staying down, is that something that he might have been coached at a young age, or is that a natural thing that, that needs to be coached out? Or what, how would you assess that? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, um, for me, for a starting position, no matter where you are, um, hands need to be in a neutral position so you can deal with any situation around you. Um, and if you if you keep your hands low, and these are really low, like outstretched low, yeah. almost down by his knees. He's, uh, you know, anything that's is, is above mid to, to sort of uh, head height, he's going to take that fraction of a second to, uh, to get his hands to it. And at the very top, uh, top elite level, the players he's playing against, sometimes you don't get the cues that uh, the other players get, uh, they get from other players when they're shooting. Yeah. Someone like Sergio Aguero, you get very little time to assess when he's going to shoot because he takes it so quickly. And when that happens, those milliseconds make all the difference. 
So let's move on to Palace uh, versus Everton. Everton have had such a hot start to the season. Do, I, I mean, uh, I get a little bit carried away. I'm not going to lie to you, David. So as soon as the team starts winning maybe two, three games in a row, right, this is it. You know, put all your money on them. But are they a bit of a dark horse for you? Or should we give them more respect than a dark horse status? Well, I think the, the fact that they've got Carlo Ancelotti as boss now, I think that's a, that gives them a, a huge uh, advantage on what uh, previous managers, you know. I think even him just being in there, when a manager comes into a club, you know that how successful he's been. And it's a lot easier for, for, the, for him as a manager, for the players to buy into what he's trying to do. Of course, he's a great character. Everyone knows that he, he's very likable. But also, he, he's putting in all, all, of the, um, all of the principles that he's put in so many teams that he's had success with before. And, um, and from that point, Everton now, they can, you know, there's, you can see them not being that sort of up and down side. No. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to finish top six, or, but you'd like to think they were finishing top ten. And now they've got Calvert-Lewin scoring goals now. That's the influence Carlo Ancelotti's had on him as well. He's, he's trying to turn him into a goal scorer. I've always liked him. You know, I saw him play for the England under the 21s and he's a workhorse. Yeah. 90 minutes, you get everything out of him. And, and sometimes that can be enough for teams if you've got people around him who can, who can provide the goals. Everton really haven't had that. And then... Um, but now that he's putting himself in a position rather than just being outside the box and, and doing the work for others, seems to be finding himself in the box a lot more and it makes it obviously a lot easier to score goals. Now, VAR was sort of the story of the weekend, really. So we're going to try our hardest not to give it too much airtime. But we'll talk about the, the penalty or the, the handball in that game as well. Did you see it differently to what happened in the Man United game or, or also in, in the Tottenham situation? Or how did you see that handball happening? It, it is a rule that was brought in thinking that, right, we'll make this black and white. That's the obvious reason behind it. But we've, to me, we've only got ourselves to blame. We got to a point in the game where not only were managers uh, complaining about the referees, all the talking newspapers and the media was of refereeing decisions. Now, I can see why uh, you know, David Ellery, who's brought, brought the rule in, that he's thinking, well, we'll take the criticism away. Handball's handball, no matter what, but as we all know, it's a, it's a totally different situation in every circumstance. Let's talk about Leeds uh, taking on Sheffield United. Leeds have been uh, a bit of a story of the off-season, in a sense. We've all been super excited to see uh, what's going to come of them. Uh, and they've been great to watch in the championship, certainly under the Bielsa era over the last two years. But this start has been exciting. Uh, they've kicked goals. They've, they've conceded a lot of goals. But they look sort of... The game against Sheffield, for me, seemed like that it was almost a normal game for once. They've gone, OK. This, yeah. is, this is this is this is we're back to we're back down to earth. Patrick Bamford though, he's now scored three goals and assists in his first three games. I'll be the first one to say I didn't see it coming. He's had a such a good start to life in the Premier League. Yeah, I think that's been the two stories for Leeds so far this season. It's been um, Patrick Bamford up front and uh, Meslier, the young keeper at the at the back. Yeah. But uh, Patrick Bamford, he's probably just you know. He's at a club now where the manager obviously values him, puts is a lot of confidence in him. He obviously listened to him talk about Bielsa. He respects him a lot and feels like he's learned a lot. And I think that we've heard criticism before about maybe his attitude or the way that he is, that he's, you know, he's a very confident guy that can sometimes come across as arrogant. And managers that have previous, had him previously, sometimes they, they don't take to that. 
mm. especially if they're not getting, you know, they can forgive them if, they, if they're scoring goals or their, their performances are brilliant every week. Patrick's always been a young player who's had a lot of promise, but when he's played, that the goals haven't come, sorry, certainly at the, the very top level. Now he's just, he's just had consistency. Like I said, he's got a manager who believes in him and he's got a, a team around him that, yeah, you, you, if there's one thing you can't level at uh, Bielsa sides that they don't work hard. They, they, they work so hard on and off the pitch, uh, on the training pitch as well. And you can see that as well, just the way the plates. It, 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 it's complex stuff what they're doing, but it, it's, it's working for them. Let's talk about the man between the sticks, because if we were to have Schwartzy in this episode, I think he'd have some different words to say about Messier after his performance against Sheffield United. Uh, Schwartz has been a little crit- critical. Uh, first two games felt like he was finding himself sort of in no man's land, you know, a bit lost in certain situations, certainly against Liverpool. Maybe that was the occasion. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. First game in the Premier League against Liverpool, you can kind of understand that. But do we feel like that performance against Sheffield United, that's his standard, and he's now using that to, to, to continue off from? Or do you like him? Do you not like him? Are there question marks? What are your thoughts? No, I, I like him a lot. I like him a lot, especially with the ball at his feet. So composed and uh, he's got a great feel for a pass, you know, dropping balls into uh, to high full-backs, into, uh, even into midfielders and strikers. And, uh, and for a young kid, no matter how he's playing and what you talk about, the, the techni- uh, technicalities of the game, it's how, they, uh, it's how they cope with being put in that spotlight at that level. And... One way of, uh, of judging, him, judging him is when the ball's at his feet and he's not hurried. You know, he doesn't look under pressure. I mean, he looks like a 12-year-old kid playing in a, in a man's world. Uh, you know, he's, he's probably he's got the body of a 16-year-old, but a face of an 11-year-old. Like, you know, and it, when you look at him, he, he, he looks out of place and he obviously hasn't got... Uh, his, his physique hasn't developed at all yet. And, um, and that's something that he can work on. But um, from the point of view of being, you know, he hasn't even got a lot of experience in the championship, never mind in the Premier League. Yeah. But again, if someone like uh, uh, Brielsa has got uh, confidence in you, you know, that, that can give you enough confidence just to get by until you do find your feet. And you're right, he probably has been affected by the, uh, the emotions of being thrust into the Premier League. And once that happens, like we talked about with uh, with Kepa, decision making's off. Yeah. You know, if your emotions are high, then your positioning can be a little bit off. Your decision making, whether to come, whether to stay, that can be off as well. But yeah, give him time, and he'll, he'll prove himself. He made a couple of great saves against Sheffield United. Um, certainly, the one that was yeah, to all, in- all intents and purposes should have been a goal. Uh, he made a great anticipation. You no, know, it was going one way. He goes down to his right and pushes it away. But, um, yeah, I've got high hopes for him, especially for somebody so young. Do you think uh, someone so young like that is probably very lucky that there are no fans just for the moment? you think that if you had to play 
at Anfield, you know, first game of the season with with a full crowd, it would be a, a pretty intimidating moment for someone like that. Yeah, I mean, we, we spoke about this, especially this, this, you know towards the end of last season when it, it, we started playing without uh, without crowds and. There's huge negatives. It's it's it doesn't feel like a real football match to be honest. But it, you wouldn't believe how amazing it is that players adapt, and the players have adapted to a point where the first game it feels weird. It feels like it's just a training game. Second game, yeah, we're getting into it a little bit, and then by the third or fourth game, it's just normal, and you're approaching the game exactly the same way that you would. But you're right. Inexperienced players like Meslier and and players who aren't having a great time of it. You know, those are the ones that this is really helping. And on top of everything, I think that it's helping the referees as well. Certainly, I know that he in Sweden, you know, very critical of the referees last year. A lot of the bad decisions that we're making. Now, it's, it, it feels like it's a lot fairer. You know, you play away from home. It's a, it's a level playing field. No, no crowd uh, sort of to, to boost the morale of the, the home side. And plus, the referees are thinking more clearly. Halftime drinks here on the Two Sharp Reds. Thoroughly enjoying my Beaujolais, Louis Jardot. Uh, I, I am a, a, a big Merlot fan, but I'm, I'm sad that you're, you're not joining me on this. What's the, what's the situation in, in Sweden? You were telling me a little bit earlier that it's, it's not so cut and dry. It's not like going down to your thirsty camel down in, uh, in Hobart, uh, in, in Sassy there. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, so like, we had a game yesterday, so... Um... We're up in the, well, it's the north, of, it's, they call it the north, but it's in the, if you think of Sweden on the map, it's right in the centre. So it's like a six-hour drive, six-hour train journey from, from Stockholm, which is further south. We've been Helsingborg right in the south. So that would be something like a, I don't know, a 12-hour drive from here. So we fly, every, every away game we fly. And sometimes it's one flight, sometimes it's two. So it's two flights today, so we've been flying all day today. So we get back here about uh, six in the evening. And at that time... You can't buy alcohol. Uh, I think it must be about 30 years ago the, the Swedish government took, uh, took hold of the, all the alcohol and just made sure that they, uh, if you buy it, well, you can only buy it, in, you can buy it in bars and restaurants, but if you want to buy it to take home, you can only buy it from uh, government-designated shops called wow. System Belong. So like, it's, uh, yeah, on a I Saturday need- afternoon, you've got to rush. if you want to drink on a Saturday night, you've got to rush there by 2 o'clock in the afternoon before it shuts. And, uh, I knew there was a reason why Schwartzy didn't live in Sweden. I knew it. I knew it. There had to be a reason, and that's it. Uh, how have you found uh, a life at, at Ostersund? It's uh, it's great to see. Um, you know, certainly since I've been in England, I've I've seen it's a real theme and a real shame that people that are sort of from the UK don't like to take advantage of of going out. You know, into Europe and you know, coming from Australia, the idea that that you could be in two hours be in a completely different area with a different language and. and um, you know everything's so exciting and new, so it's it's great to see that that yes, someone like yourself has gone. Let, let's just let's sink our teeth in. But how have you how have you found it since you've been there? Yeah, it, it's been great. Uh, you know, the, off the back of the success that the club had uh, in Europa League, beating Arsenal in the uh, mm-hmm. in the last sixteen at the Emirates, it was you know it's a tiny club. Twenty five years ago, there were, there wasn't OF Core didn't uh, didn't exist, and now uh, you know that. It was a guy called Daniel Schinberg who started the club. He had this crazy idea in the middle of nowhere. It's it's skiing country here. Just over the, I'm at the stadium now. Just over the road, it's like the it's the world centre for biathlons. You know, like the cross country skiing yeah. and the, and the shooting. This is skiing country here. 
so he had this crazy idea and just said, look, we're going to be champions. Of, one day we're going to be champions of, of Sweden and we're going to play in Europe and we're going to take on the best. And then, like I said, yeah, I think it was 20 years later, there was a, they were beating Galatasaray, uh, beating Athletic Bilbao, and then playing up against uh, in Arsenal in the in the last uh, last 32 of the of the Europa League. So it's it was something that was brilliant uh, for me to to come here, and it wasn't just the the, the football. The, the club's got a real different uh, sort of ethic and ethos. It was built on doing things differently. You know, uh, one of the things they do here is uh, at the end of every season they have a, a culture show. So in the past they've done uh, production of Swan Lake. They've produced Brilliant. their own book. Um, last year it was like a, a comedy and uh, singing sketch uh, sketch show type thing in the local theatre here, and it's it was it's all done with the aim of of bringing people or bringing the players outside their comfort zone. You know, thinking that if the, if they can you know they can play in front of twenty thousand, twenty five thousand fans down in Stockholm, but that's fine. But put them in front of five hundred people in the theatre and. The, they're not so comfortable, let me, <laughs> let me am, tell you that. Am I right in saying that that sounds completely different to what you would have experienced at, say, Barnsley? Am I right in saying that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're right there. But, I mean, it's, like I said, it's, there's a lot more pl- cl- uh, clubs off the back of the likes of what Osterson are doing, uh, trying to build these cultures in the club. Yeah. No longer they're just, um, clubs just happy just to get, get any manager in and, or uh, get any players in. You know, they have to create a culture first, uh, you know, and you know, all the top managers, you know, like Klopp and Guardiola, it starts with the culture first and then they build everything, everything else comes around that. And it's, it's really important because at the end of the day, for us, when you're, when you're not performing well, you have to have something else to fall back on. And, you know, just being good players won't get you through it, you know, and, and those deeper concepts and, and cultures of team building. That's what gets you through it, really. So speaking of good cultures, if we dip our toes back into the Premier League with three games to, to go over, uh, Leicester, they were phenomenal against Manchester City. I don't think anyone really saw that happening. We probably knew that they'd, they'd uh, you know, really puff their chest out and, and make a real go of it, but it was extraordinary. And I saw in your Twitter as well, Jamie Vardy, ageing like a fine WKD. He is... What makes him so good? I just don't understand it. I really don't. Do you know what it is? And I had an old manager who talked about um, players becoming civilised. So, especially players like Jamie Vardy, who, you know, they, they don't give defenders too much peace. They, they chase every ball. And the moment they become sort of civilised and they start thinking too much about the game, then that's when they stop running da- running down for that uh, for that lost cause, the, the one in every hundred chance that they you know that they'll get something from it, and he hasn't changed one bit from the moment he came up into league football uh, with Fleetwood and uh, and obviously Leicester, he hasn't changed one bit and he, he hasn't changed his work ethic. He's understood what works for him and what's got him there. Yep. And he hasn't changed at all. He hasn't tried to uh, he, listen. He's a very good footballer. He's probably, and I think Brendan Rodgers said when he first went in there, he uh, he felt that he'd underrated Jamie Vardy. He thought he was just about pace and scoring goals when he was much better than that. But a lot of players, when they get to that level, when they've, they've won championships, they can stop doing the things that's, that, that have got them there and, and maybe try and think that they're a different kind of player. 
coming short to receive the ball and trying to, yeah, just trying to hold the ball and and show that they can do more than what's what people think they can do. Whereas with him, yeah, he's he's not lost his pace at all, and he's not lost his pace because he hasn't stopped doing those runs. And, well, I hope uh, he doesn't stop. I really hope it doesn't yeah. stop. It's, it's, he's putting on a show for us, and I absolutely love it. I tell you who's not putting on a show, though, right now. Would you say City's defence, yeah, I'm not going to call it a defensive emergency, but they've almost spent £400 million since Pep came in into their back line. You look at it against Leicester and you go, well, that doesn't look like £400 million of quality by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he brought in Nathan Akim, uh, who played uh, yesterday as well. So he scored. Yep. Uh, scored a great header. But these the, these aren't the defenders' defenders that you know that, that probably the team's crying out for. Of course, when you're playing for Pep Guardiola, you have to have a certain level of ball. That's of, of you know great importance to him. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how how good you you are with the ball. If you're making mistakes or not providing that protection to, to your goalkeeper, then it, it doesn't make any difference. And you can see yesterday, just talking about Jamie Vardy, Jamie Vardy gives defenders nightmares. He, he does everything that a defender doesn't want to do. He commits them, he runs at them, he closes them down all the time. And I think that you know, defenders who aren't primarily defenders, especially, they, they hate that. And these comments that Rodri comes out and, and says that he's criticising uh, Leicester because that's it's kind of not the football that he uh, he wants to play. He doesn't want to play against team on a low block, trying to hit in the counter. He's got a short memory. He played for Atletico Madrid. You know, he played for the most defensive counter-attacking side in Europe in the last ten years. So it's uh, he's got a bit of a cheek saying that, but yeah, it, you've got to give massive credit to Leicester. One manager who loves to defend, we know that he loves his bus, uh, Jose Mourinho and Tottenham. Uh, it was a very weird game against Newcastle United. You felt like certainly in the first half that it could have been a 2-3-4, maybe even four-goal sort of day for Tottenham. Didn't uh, work out that way. But points were shared after that magic word, VAR, uh, <laughs> interrupted things with an Eric Dyer handball. Um, and this is the sort of the last real VAR chat that we'll have uh, this episode of the Two Sharp Reds, because it was very different to the others from the Palace game and from the, the Brighton Man United game. He wasn't looking at the ball, but my argument is, uh, one of my favourite rules, I think it was maybe two seasons ago, it was the word silhouette. When talking about a handball, your, your, your body had to be in a natural standing silhouette, which makes perfect sense to me. So, i.e., if your arms are, you know, in, in, almost in a Kepa situation, outstretched downwards, it's going to be a handball. And his arm was up in the air. It's a handball. Is that fair? Not fair? Well, I, I don't think it's fair. I mean, I've seen a lot of people criticise him, thinking, well, why is his hand up there in the first place as he's landing? But I also think he, get, he gets a small nudge in the back just as he does land. So it just nudges him forward. So yep. he just gets balance. But once that ball goes behind you, the only reason I can see giving a penalty in that situation, if the ball's goal-bound... Yeah. One, it, it, it's innocuous. It wasn't going into a dangerous... Uh, to me, it wasn't going in a dangerous area. Um, and if you can't see it, how can it... You know, it doesn't have to be deliberate now, I know that. But how can it be intentional? How can there be any advantage that, uh, that's given to him in that situation? And you're just going to get something ridiculous. Like where... Um, remember Thierry Henry? He always used to have that thing where he'd come in the right, from the right wing... And they just flick the ball up the defender's hand. Now, because the rule was different, 
he didn't really get it. Yeah. But it was always there with the intention. Now you're just going to get, you'd be stupid not to do that in that situation to gain the advantage if that's what's going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one person who touched on it as well after the game, which I thought was amazing, was Steve Bruce came out and said, you know, great, you know, great result for our side uh, to be able to nick a point, but it wasn't fair. He also suggested that all the managers should get together and discuss this. So I suppose that comes full circle as to what we were touching on earlier. Did you like what he said there? And that it probably should be something they need to look at doing. Yeah, he's an honest guy, Steve Bruce, and he's exactly right. You know, if it was on, if the shoe was on the other foot, he'd have been the one that was storming down the tunnel before the penalty, like Mourinho was. You know, yeah, it's you know, Mourinho likes to to build this the world's against us uh, type of mentality. But um, yeah, it looks like it. It looks like it to me at the moment. But it, at the end of the day, that's you know, if that's the rule, that's the rule. And and like I keep going back to it, we, we're all to blame for this. Simply because of all the, the criticism that we give referees, I'm, I mean, I'm the world's worst for it. But at the end of the day, that's it was probably got to a point where it was, you know, referees' jobs were so hard and the pressure was so uh, so much on them that it's, you know, they've tried to get, give this rule to, to help them out and give them a bit of clarity. Yeah. Yet all it's done is it's it's created mayhem. So the last game I want to talk about here as we wrap things up on the two shut reds was between West Ham and Wolverhampton. I, be honest, did any, who, who saw that one coming? I don't think anyone saw that coming. I thought when you look on paper, the counter-attacking style, the physicality of Wolverhampton is going to be too much for them. We saw as well David Moyes managing over Zoom. So I don't know if maybe he'll be told to continue that <laughs> until, at least until the streak ends. But it was a, a fantastic palate cleanser, I think, for, for West Ham United. Yeah, and we, we talked about um, the, the counter-attacking of Leicester. And the criticism mm. that got from from Rodri and in, in Manchester City, but this was perfect from um, from West Ham. This, I think, a lot of the, the the goals came from stealing the ball in midfield, breaking on their uh, breaking on Wolves, and even though they were playing at home, you know, it was it, it it's still a, a great tactic to use. And I think that a lot of the time, especially now that there's no crowds, away teams are. You know, we talk about the level, level playing field. That the away team sort of, the they don't feel like the the away team, you know. No. So if you can try and create that against a side who, look off the off the back of last season, Wolves were a very good side, very good attacking side. And if you do give them space in behind, Adama Traoré is going to exploit it. And um, and they've got you know him and uh, Jimenez great foils for each other because they mix up a little bit. But like I said, you know, the, the, the uh, West Ham got the tactic spot on. Without and, a recognised number nine as well, which is quite interesting, the way that they were yeah, able to pull that off. Michael Antonio has been doing such a good job so the last 18 months, two years. Um, you know, physically, you know, he, he breaks forward with such pace. Um, and he, he's such a danger around the box now as well. Mm. And, and West Ham, yeah, you're right. It, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a result anyone saw coming. But, you know, it, the, the template's there for them to, uh, to do well now. And that template includes yeah. keeping David Moyes at home. That's exactly right. I like it a lot. like it a lot. Now, that's all the time we've got for here on Two Shut Reds. So now it comes to the magic moment where we compare the wine to a player, past or present. So what I'm going to do to help us all out here, uh, I'll read you out exactly what I'm tasting and, and what I'm experiencing. Now, I'll tell you who I think it, it reminds me of. And so then maybe you can use that as a basis to go off. 
So the Beaujolais village, uh, Louis Jardot from France, uh, it's, it's a, a fruity wine with real depth, enhanced by their home soil. Succulent red with traditional fermented methods. So generally what we'll do here is I'll look at keywords. We've got fruity with real depth, enhanced by being at home, as well as the word traditional uh, it comes to mind. And based off that last game that we were talking about between West Ham and Wolverhampton, I'm going to have to give it for the, the skipper that night, of course, was Declan Rice, someone who is, you feel like he feels it right at home. He's traditional, uh, you know, many, many ways. You sort of feel like he's a little bit of a throwback player, but his depth and what he can add to if he was to go to a Chelsea as well, which we've seen that he, he might do, I think he could add real depth there. So I think with all of those ideas, I'm going to have to go with Declan Rice. Okay, well, I'm going to go with Jamie Vardy. Uh-huh. Simply because, because the depth, he loves running deep in behind defences. Home soil, think of home soil, think of England. You don't get any more English than Jamie Vardy. True. He's a... Uh, yeah, he's a... Uh, He's a Union Jack in uh, uh, St. George's flag in human form. And the fruits, the fruits obviously come from the blue WKD. Exactly right. I, I don't know what fruit, but uh, I'm sure there's a few in there. Who knows? <laughs> exactly right. David, I really appreciate your time here on the Two Sharp Reds. And hopefully when the world comes back to normal, myself and Schwartzy will come on up to Sweden, maybe try and source out a, a vineyard if they exist. In that part of the world, I'm sure that we'll be able to find one somewhere and who knows, catch a game with Osterson. I've only got one bit of advice. Right. Bring a big coat. Big coat, right. <laughs> Done. Love it. Thank you very much, mate. Enjoy it, uh, your time here on the Two Sharp Reds. Cheers, Ollie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.